Before we dive in today, we want to take a moment to wish all the best to Jeff Bridges. We recorded this episode of Binge Mode Marvel a few weeks ago before Jeff Bridges announced on October 19th that he had been diagnosed with lymphoma. Bridges' portrayal of Obadiah Stane is iconic and a source of great cheer for us, as you'll hear throughout this episode, and we wish him a speedy recovery. All the best. The render is complete. A little ostentatious, don't you think? What was I thinking? You're usually so discreet. Tell you what, throw a little adult content and spoilers in there. Yes, that should help you keep a low profile. The render is complete. Hey, I like it. Record it, upload it. And now, the debut of Binge Mode Marvel. I, I, I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I made, largely public. Truth is, I am Iron Man. And welcome to Binge Mode Marvel! (laughs) (laughs) Proudly part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! It's a great website. (laughs) Joining me today, now that he's gone to fetch my vodka martini, and I want to be clear, I want it very dry, with olives. A lot of olives, like at least three olives. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your favorite armored Avenger, Jason Concepcion. Mel, make it two vodka martinis, extra dry, extra olives, extra fast. Because at long last, it's time to toast the debut of Binge Mode Marvel, where we'll be exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it as phase four of the MCU nears. Kevin Feige, protect us! Please make the journey to Stark Industries with us by following this podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings or we'll send the Ironmonger, always thought that was a bad name, your way. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive, Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, Binge Mode Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly, for free, exclusively on Spotify. Ooh, exclusive. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to schedule your debrief with Agent Colson. He's waiting patiently. Not dead. <laughs> and head to therigger.com slash shop. Spoiler, not dead. <laughs> to check out our Binge Mode merch, you'll need to have a change of clothes handy if dummies on fire safety during your next configuration test. Listen, I'm just going to get this out of the way early. Let's show dummy some kindness I and some tenderness and dummy some love. No. Dummy likes it. They have that working relationship where he's kind of mean to dummy, but also dummy trolls him a little bit and does stuff to get under his skin. 
He and Dummy have a good relationship, and that's just how it is. Protect Dummy at all costs, okay? (laughs) At all costs. Folks, previously on Binge Mode, we have explored the wider Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, and Star Wars canons. We love a wide canon. What can we say? That's right. And today, we're diving deep. Deep. (laughs) My jaw already hurts from smiling. This is great. Into Iron Man, the 2008 Jon Favreau film that launched the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh my God, did it. With the might of Tony's Mark I armor. And in so doing, it is not an exaggeration to say, altered the course of movie history. Absolutely. As always here on Binge Mode, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from not only this film, but all three phases of the MCU to date and also the wider Marvel comic canon. Just all of it. 616 Ultimate Universe. All the realities, baby. (laughs) You've been warned. So solve the icing problem because it's time to suit up and take flight right after this. Mal, Mm. there is nothing except theirs. There is no art opening. There's no benefit. There's nothing to sign. There are the plot points and nothing else. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Iron Man by opening up the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge of the Nine Realms. After demoing his latest vile creation for the U.S. military in Afghanistan, billionaire, playboy, genius, wide-legged gene and goatee enthusiast. He loves a boot cut. (laughs) Listen, I have some notes on Tony's pants. You can't tell him anything. He was a CEO (laughs) at 21. You can't tell him anything. Loose fit in the workshop, you know? I understand it, but my guy needs to pivot to sweatpants. The athleisure era really was made for Tony Stark. He just slacks. Horrible. To peek behind the curtain, I don't think the the platform sneakers don't look good with a tapered leg. Great call. Great call. <laughs> you remain a scholar of the <laughs> height adjusting props. Jon Snow's apple crate. How we miss it. you. <laughs> and of course, on that list of descriptors, weapons designer, Tony Stark, captured by the terrorist group, the Ten Rings, grievously injured by his own munitions, but saved by the legend, Ho Yinsen. Tony, with the help of Yinsen, builds a miniaturized arc reactor to stabilize the shrapnel creeping toward his heart. And then, folks, they don't call it Iron Man for nothing. He builds something else, a suit of armor, which he uses to escape. But, Jason, in the process, Yinsen, dear sweet Yinsen, sacrifices himself to buy Tony more time. He didn't need to do it. Isaac? Give us those heart-wrenching Peter Parker, I don't feel so good, whales <laughs> for the sweet Professor Yinsen. I don't feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> sorry. Savage. 
It's absolutely. And then just one the, of Jason's all-time most savage suggestions was making that our death sound for binge mode Marvel. And we'll let the imagination of the audience take poor Peter and Ho Yinsen's ashes on the wind. Back home, Tony swears off weapons manufacturing against the will of Stark Industries executive and ex-CEO Obadiah Stane. Ooh, that guy looks bad. Maybe he is the bad guy. (laughs) With his invaluable aide-de-camp, Pepper Potts, running the day-to-day and really his entire fucking life, let's be honest about it, Tony heads to the workshop to improve his Iron Man designs. Jason, I've been meaning to tell you on the latest round of binge mode paperwork you filled out, you're missing eight digits on your social security number. <laughs> Where would he be without Pepper? Literally in the gutter. For sure dead. Yeah, dead. Yes. I mean, there are there's a long-running tally of how many times should Tony be dead moments in this film getting smashed into the concrete in his own workshop. But if you just pull back and assess his entire life, I mean, without Pepper, he would have been... An absolute mess. Absolute Toast. mess. Tony puts the armor into the field for the first time against the Ten Rings. This isn't just a test flight. This is real action. That's I right. mean, Rhodey has his little flip phone ready and everything. It turns <laughs> out the Ten Rings, even after Tony's declaration that Stark Industries was completely changing the nature of its business, has a hold of more Stark weaponry. Eventually, Tony catches up, and thankfully, like, slightly faster than most people in the comics catch up to who Iron Man actually is, but only slightly. Yeah. (laughs) To the fact that Obadiah Stane, yes, the guy whose last name is Stane, a blight upon this story in Tony's legacy. Spelled (laughs) S-T-A-N-E, not S-T-A-I-N. Sure, but even so, has been working behind his back, selling arms to the Ten Rings. After a failed assassination attempt by Stain, Stark goes head-to-head against the ex-Stark Industries CEO, wearing his ironmonger gray armor that he had based on the original Mark I design of Tony's. Stark prevails, of course. Isaac, give us an impressive for Obadiah Stain. Impressive! Impressive! Did he actually like, was he like, and also put an evil voice coder on my (laughs) voice box? I think he must have used the same vocal warm-ups that he had for Crazy Heart. Impressive. Impressive. (laughs) Later, at a press conference, Tony admits that, yes, I am Iron Man. After that reveal, Nick Fury visits Tony in his Malibu mansion to enlist him into the Avengers Initiative. Bam, bam, bam! Woo! Jason? Yes. Nick Fury just told you, but you've become part of a bigger universe. That's right. You just don't know it yet. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is the future. Jay, before we dive in fully here, talk about birth of the MCU, the plot of the film itself. What's your origin story with both Iron Man, the film, Mm -hmm. and Marvel Comics and lore at large? Oh, man. Uh, Marvel Comics basically taught me how to read. When I was a kid, 
went to the Philippines as a child. I was like six or seven or something. And there was not a lot of content media to engage with. Like television was all in a different language. There wasn't a whole lot of just like books laying around. But I had a cousin who was big into comics, mostly Marvel comics. And he had like Avengers, Iron Man, Hulk, X-Men, West Coast Avengers, all the good stuff. And he had them all bound like the Encyclopedia Britannica into these like hardcover books just on the wall. That's awesome. Like the way you would buy an omnibus edition today. And I would just pull them down and just run through them. And then so when I got home, I was like, I want to keep going. I want to keep going with comic books. And then that just started a, you know, years long odyssey of collecting comic books. And then as soon as the movie started coming out, forget it. You know, (laughs) it's like as soon as the X-Men movie came out, I was like, Uh, I'm in. As soon as Blade came out, I'm like, I'm in. Some of the best times I've ever had in a movie theater have been watching Marvel movies and experiencing that feeling of community with a bunch of other people who have similar backstories of falling in love with comic books and reacting to these like epic moments that you, we, I don't think anybody ever thought that they'd see splashed across a silver screen. I love that. That's so awesome. Yeah. Also, nice to think about a time when people could share things together in person in the it same was nice. place. It was nice. <laughs> Getting so nostalgic right now. I have also always loved comic book movies and comic book stories. I did not get into comic books as a reading medium until yeah. much later in my life with, in many cases, uh, you serving as my guide, my light in the dark. (laughs) And it's been a joy. It's been a joy to fall so much deeper into the lore, into the myth, into the worlds, into the stories. For the movies, also loved X-Men, loved the Batman movies. Really, any time I got a chance to see a superhero film or story in any way, I just found it so thrilling and so exciting. The launch of the MCU, in particular, I associate with kind of a pivot point in my life, Iron Man came out a week before I graduated college. Oh, wow. So it's like the last movie (laughs) that I saw when I was still in college. And thus, I associate it very strongly with the dawn of basically adulthood for me. And I've always appreciated that aspect of it because I was entering this new phase of my life. But there was the ability through the MCU and through these movies, in addition to many of the other stories that we've talked about here on Binge Mode, to continue to tap into that childlike sense of wonder, that aspect of falling fully into a new idea and a new cast of characters and immersing myself in the new possibilities that those things represented that I just love so much and have always been so grateful to share with you and other people. So when I sat watching Endgame, sobbing like a baby... (laughs) (laughs) As I said goodbye to Tony, it was in part because I felt like I was closing the book on a chapter of my life. And that chapter's brought me a lot of great joy. Now, of course, one of the central tenets of the conversations that we have together is that you can always open that book right back up That's right. So let's do that now. Okay, before we talk about the actual movie, the actual Mm -hmm. events that take place inside of Iron Man. Let's pan back for a minute and examine how the Iron Man film came to be and in coming to be, how it established the template for the entire MCU and, again, altered the future of movies in the process. Phase one, film one, the kickoff of the MCU, 
Who knew it would work? Who knew that we would end up here? The answer is almost no one. Yes. The prospect of an MCU of this nature was really unfathomable for a certain stretch of time. Marvel had parceled off the rights to many of its characters over the years, including Mm -hmm. Iron Man back in 1990, many others, including the Hulk, Spider-Man, X-Men, Fantastic Four. These are all their money, iconic heroes. And this was all accomplished basically before the company filed for bankruptcy in 1996. A decade later, in 2006, Marvel Studios reacquired the rights to everyone's favorite playboy billionaire genius, or perhaps more accurately, the man who would go on to shock the world by becoming everyone's favorite playboy billionaire genius. Because Iron Man has been a comic staple since the early 60s, he was really considered within uh, Marvel's stable of characters kind of B-list. And yet he was the choice to jumpstart this entire cinematic endeavor in this film franchise. Why? How? Folks, huddle around and and channel your inner George Lucas here for a second to say it with us. Merch, toys, action figures, how to cash in. That is the germ of how we got here. In the Ben Fritz book, The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies, Fritz outlines how... Toy Biz, the Ike Perlmutter company that Marvel had merged with in 1997 after entering Chapter 11, played a role as ultimately elemental to launching what we now think of as the MCU in its totality as Palladium was to getting Tony out of the Ten Rings base in the first place. We will spend uh, much more time over the course of this series discussing the creation, the evolution, the tweaking, and the ultimate perfection of Mm -hmm. what would become the MCU formula. But for today's purposes, there are a couple of keys to how that formula took shape in the first place. Number one, Marvel's David Maisel hinged his pitch to Perlmutter on understanding and loving the characters. Quote, the movie should be made by people who love the characters, love the stories, and really care about these movies being the best they can, according to Fritz's recounting. And two, everyone understood that Perlmutter wanted to make that money, baby. <laughs> according to Fritz, the brass decided which film to make after holding focus groups for kids. Quote, Marvel brought together groups of children, showed them pictures of its superheroes, and described their abilities and weapons. Then they asked the kids which ones they would most like to play with as a toy. The overwhelming answer to the surprise of many was Iron Man. I love that the idea of the movies being made by people who love the story and characters was considered highly novel. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wait a second. Wild you can do stuff. that? Oh, my God. Are you sure? Oh, man. They cast Terrence Howard as James Rhodes, and they paid him $3.5 million, the most of anyone in the cast. Now, this might, at the time, have just seemed like a little bit of future trivia, right? What did every actor in the film make? But in hindsight... It's actually a really useful window into how quickly Iron Man's success just fundamentally altered the landscape of what Marvel Studios was and what it was trying to do. Howard's next time baby line in this movie when he's looking back at the armor is the clearest possible tease for Rhodes' impending role as War Machine. And we also get the War Machine wireframe armor in the end credits. But... When Iron Man 2 rolls around, Don Cheadle is the one donning that armor because in reports vary. There are all sorts of different things that you can Google here and, and recountings that you can find. 
Howard wanted more money. Marvel wanted to give him less. And so they did not move forward together. Downey, though, this is the key, had been making less money than that in the first movie. He went from not being the top earner on the call sheet to being the foundation of a movie-making empire. That is how rapidly things changed. Including, of course, for RDJ, Robert Downey Jr., who director John Favreau believed was the perfect choice specifically because he, like Tony, was imperfect. Quote, we didn't want to just go with a safe choice, Favreau told USA Today in 2007. Quote, the best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to find an inner balance to overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. And you got to say, John Favreau crushed it. Yes. He crushed this choice. He crushed Absolutely. it. Genius choice. Kevin Feige, now inextricable from the Marvel legacy, then a riser at the company, agreed. It's not an exaggeration to say that it's one of the most important decisions in the history of cinema and one that helped shape its future. Absolutely. And that hinged in large part on the charisma, the charisma that Downey cultivated line after improvised line, scene after scene. Because Tony Stark, as a character, isn't always the easiest sell for the masses. Not always a good guy. And I think if you look at it, dispassionately, and I love Tony Stark, I love Iron Man, I love the character. Every problem he has is of his own making. (laughs) He, like, creates all his own problems. By which I mean Ultron, Stain, Tony's technology getting out into the world and coming back at him. And they knew, they knew when they were making this movie that that was going to be something they had to steer into and embrace so that audiences would embrace the film and Tony right along with them. And as Favreau talked about in 2007 at Comic-Con when they were doing press in the run-up to the movie, he, he said this to Ain't It Cool News while promoting the film. Quote, I think Robert Downey Jr. playing him the way he does and the way he handled the story is going to make it work. But Iron Man is a tricky and always has been a tricky hero, even in the Civil War books that are out. He's lost a Mm -hmm. lot of fans because he's always been a guy who has sort of marched to a different drum. And how do you stay true to that while still making a movie that's relatable and make a character that you'll want to root for? Downey had to shoulder all of that pressure as they were setting out to make this film. Before it even hit theaters, they knew that that was all going to rest on his performance and his ability to win people over. The balance was key in this film and has proven key across the life of the MCU. Iron Man wasn't just it's all all about about vibes. vibes. Iron Man wasn't just the origin story for Tony as a hero. It was the origin story for the MCU's eventual signature comedy meets action tone. As Favs told the Hollywood Reporter in 2006, quote, I think that integrating practical filmmaking and augmenting it with CGI is the key to making it an emotionally involved story. Still crushing it on that front with sweet baby Yoda. Never change, fans. Love it. But as a reminder of how far the MCU has come from the moments when those quotes were uttered, the moment when this movie was made, that emotion was often found in real time as they were on set doing this. It was such a by-the-seat-of-their-pants production that this is how Jeff Bridges... This is so funny. Described it to PBS's Actors on Actors. And guess who was interviewing him in this? Matthew McConaughey. Unbelievable. 
This is how much from, how much weed was burnt up in that in the course well, of that conversation. You'll be able to deduce that after hearing this next quote. This is from their conversation Wait. in 2016. He's talking about improvising on set. Quote, I made a little adjustment in my head. The adjustment was, Jeff, just relax. You're in a $200 million student film. Have fun. I love it. A, a student, student film. film. <laughs> I mean, it, it's astounding in retrospect to hear somebody who was a central figure in this refer to this now multi-billion dollar enterprise in that fashion. But even the people who were making the movie knew how precarious the endeavor was. Here's another quote. This one from Feige, and this is to Deadline's Jeff Boucher in 2018, reflecting back on a decade prior, the decade of the MCU. Quote, we didn't know with certainty what would work and what wouldn't work. If we were wrong, that would have been the end of it. But guess what, folks? (laughs) (laughs) How unexpected was the network and the, the eventual film universe that Iron Man helped spawn? Quote, Nobody at Marvel was yet using the term cinematic universe, Fritz wrote in the big picture. From that to a four, you know what's cool, billion dollars Disney acquisition in 2009. And eventually to the MCU becoming the top grossing film franchise of all time with 22 plus billion with a B netted to date and certainly more to come. Yeah, you really cannot overstate the audacity of choosing to take a B-list character like Iron Man and launching this titanic enterprise around him. Incredible stuff. Let's talk about the actual movie, shall we? Let's do it. Tony Stark never refers to himself as a futurist in Iron Man or any of the movies which follow this first foray into a larger universe. The only time the words the futurist are uttered in the MCU come in Captain America Civil War. Stark goes to the maximum security prison known as the Raft to see his at that time, ex-friends and colleagues. And as he enters, Hawkeye is applauding ironically, and he proclaims, the futurist, gentlemen, the futurist is here. He sees bastard. He knows what's best for you. This comment is more (laughs) than just a cutting observation of Stark's character and the ways he sees himself. In the comics, Tony Stark, beginning with the 2006 and 2007 Civil War crossover, often refers to himself as quote, the futurist. I'm a futurist. The way my mind works, I can intuit the future, he says in that miniseries. Most often, that foresight and the future Stark's mind lives in was one of conflict, competition, and war. Eventually, that obsession would be balanced by a burgeoning morality and sense of responsibility for the weapons that he'd put into the world. When moviegoers first meet Stark, he's already made a name for himself as a designer and manufacturer of advanced weapons, which he markets and sells at a great profit to the American military. He sounds like you, Jay. I'm a podcaster. The way my mind works. That's right. (laughs) Tony is in Afghanistan, and as we'll later see, he has just presided over a swaggering demonstration of his latest creation, the Jericho. Is it better to be feared or respected, Stark says to his audience. He loves to ham it up. And I say, is it too much to ask for both? (laughs) It's like when Isaac and Steve are like, you know, guys, can you go shorter, but also like do the full deep dive? Is it too much to ask for both? (laughs) With that in mind, I humbly present the crown jewel of Stark Industries Freedom Line, 
It is the first missile system to incorporate our proprietary repulsor technology. And then he adds later, find an excuse to let one of these off the chain, and I promise you, the bad guys won't even want to come out of their caves. There's no real mistaking the tone here. He's glorifying these weapons of destruction. The Jericho is a guided missile that contains multiple smart mini bombs, each of which, thanks to that patented repulsor tech, which will, of course, become a part of his armor, as Jason will outline in depth later, contains immense destructive power. We see Tony raise his hands proudly, Night King style, but instead (laughs) of raising the dead, the whites, he's raising all of the dust and the destruction from the mountain he just exploded just to show that he could. It's a lethal encapsulation of the damage that Tony's genius is capable of unleashing yes. upon the world and has been unleashing upon the world. His inventions at this point can only ensure the future by tearing down the future for somebody else. And after this display, he's riding back to the airbase in a convoy of Humvees and he's mugging for the soldier and the security escort. There's a ample <laughs> dose of what's age the worst humor. Oh boy. Oh boy. In this sequence and elsewhere. In the movie yeah. as well. Oh boy. My God. Here he's regaling the assembled with tales of his sexual conquests, drinking whiskey, posing for photos. When the guy he's posing with throws up a peace sign, he says, yeah, peace, I love peace. I'd be out of a job with peace. <laughs> and just then, their column is ambushed. The hidden enemy, the terrorist group known as the Ten Rings, which we'll talk about more later today, is armed with stark industry munitions. A shell lands near... Tony as he's trying to escape, and he's caught in the hell that his tech, his tech specifically, makes possible. And he has just Mm -hmm. long enough to read the Stark name, the Stark label, on the munition before it explodes. The shrapnel slicing easily, easily through his body armor, lodging in his chest. Pieces of Tony's destructive creations, the products that came from his mind, from his greed, misguided though it was at the time, are now literally a part of him, embedded inside of him. Well, 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 if it isn't the repercussions of my actions. (laughs) The futurist sees the world as a collection of competing structures, a mechanical object almost, which when the gears and the forces they animate, the gears are understood, can be manipulated to the futurist's benefit. Of course, these tweaks and disruptions can also generate general misery for those unlucky enough to be caught in the gears of this progress. And this is the futurist's blind spot. They are either isolated from the concerns of everyday people and thus unable to comprehend them, or they simply don't care. And we see this side of Tony in a flashback to Las Vegas that follows the opening attack sequence 36 hours before he's taken captive. He's in town to accept the Apogee Award for design and engineering excellence as a montage of his life plays, media clippings, toasting all of Tony's many achievements streaming on the screen, and narrator recounts Stark's honestly very, very impressive CV. Mm-hmm. Built his first circuit board at age four. His first engine at age six. Graduated summa cum laude from MIT at 17. Became CEO of Stark Industries at 21. Quote, a flex. With the keys to the kingdom, Tony ushers in a new era for his father's legacy, creating smarter weapons, advanced robotics, satellite targeting. Today, Tony Stark has changed the face of the weapons industry by ensuring freedom and protecting America and her interests around the globe. On hand to present Tony his award is his good friend and Stark Industries military liaison, Colonel James Rhodes. Of course, Tony doesn't bother to show up 
accepting in his place his former CEO, Obadiah Stane. Well, I'm not Tony Stark. As we will soon learn, he's who Stark might have become if Tony had not found his morality. Yes. Where does Rhodes find Tony gambling, flirting, living it up? He's at the craps table. This is the playboy. This is the party boy who is as ingrained in Tony's being as the genius, the inventor. But part of the brilliance of Tony Stark as a creation is that he isn't just a caricature of lust or vice. He's a fully fleshed out person and people are flawed. He's driven by intellect and hubris, yes, but also by pain and grief and doubt and fear. The renowned 1979 comic arc Demon in a Bottle remains one of the most loved and revered Iron Man comics in large part because of how it studies that, how it seeks to understand Tony's humanity, the addiction that he battles, the duality of purpose and persona as both Iron Man and Tony Stark that define his existence. And the Iron Man films, to their credit, seek to capture that same essence right from the jump, from take one. Understanding that Tony Stark and Iron Man bring fun and glam and high-stakes thrills, all of that, of course. Gotta sell those toys, remember. But also those demons. His journey is not defined by moving beyond those demons exactly, but rather by discovering the strength to face them head on, to seek to understand how they inform the decisions that he makes, the way he lives his life. This is, of course, a theme that Tony embraces directly in his We Create Our Own Demons opening in Iron Man 3. Iron Man's face shield isn't actually a mask that Tony pulls down to cover these aspects of his being. It's a casing that ensures that those demons move with him always. And so it's no accident that this Vegas crap sequence comes right on the heels of that slideshow of his achievements that Jason just outlined, but also the recounting of the legacy that he inherited, which is one of opportunity, yes, but also pressure, pain. His father Howard's breakthrough serving as both a portal to opportunity that would be unthinkable for almost every other person in the world, but his parents' death and all the things that were left unsaid between them also a defining source of loss and anguish. On his way to his car, Tony is confronted by Vanity Fair reporter Christine Everhart. Mm. Asked by Everhart if he has any qualms about his work as a weapons manufacturer, Tony's defensiveness betrays his sensitivity to the issue. You've been called the Da Vinci of our time. What do you say to that? Absolutely ridiculous, <laughs> I don't paint. Amazing. And what do you say to your other name, the Merchant of Death? That's not bad. Great stuff. Before his armor becomes his shield, <laughs> his sarcasm is. He tells her about his dad Howard's old line. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy, to which she astutely replies. That's a great line coming from the guy selling the sticks. He notes that Stark Industries' other more obviously beneficial work in agriculture. Nobody talks about the smart crops, Christine. Hello, <laughs> smart crops. Thank you, the smart soy, the smart corn, the IntelliCrops. Christine needs cram out there doing some advanced research for her. Come on. Christine, what about the IntelliCrops? The IntelliTomatoes, the IntelliCucumbers? Starvation staved off around the world because of the IntelliCrops, Christine. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> and he notes that that work in agriculture and medicine have been bankrolled by military dollars. When he makes the case that Howard's work on the Manhattan Project made him a hero, he's defensive, but also almost anguished. As this mm -hmm. takes place before the attack, whether Tony is actually concerned about 
hunger and public health, or whether he views those things as uh, useful PR for laundering Stark Industries' reputation is an open question. Whatever the case, what follows is an awful, awful and hackish depiction of a female reporter sleeping with her subject. You ever lose an hour of sleep your whole life? I'd be prepared to lose a few with you. (sighs) Christine, after losing a few hours, awakes. As we can intuit, Tony does on the mornings that he's actually in his bed, rare though they may be, to Jarvis's dulcet tones. I can hear Fred and George saying, we thought we heard your dulcet tones, Jarvis. Shortly thereafter, Christine also encounters Pepper's absolutely savage dunks. Why is she being mean to Pepper? That's what I don't get. Christine, what are you doing? Well, that's one of the hacks of the movie. That's the shorthand that you have to establish right away. We like Pepper. We want Pepper to be okay instantly, right? Gwyneth just has that pull over you with the character. If Pepper is beefing with someone, we're automatically going to be against that person. Taking out the trash. Rough line. (laughs) Oh, God. Iron Man. Anyway, weather reports, a glimpse of the Pacific from the automated bedroom windows, a playpen fit for a playboy perched right on that cliffside in Malibu. Go west, young man. That's where the future is. Jarvis, of course, futurized too. He is named after Edwin Jarvis of comic book fame, the former Stark family butler in all of the prior stories, a character in Agent Carter too, the television show, Also makes a brief appearance in the time travel sequence in Endgame. But this Jarvis, digitized, conceptualized for a modern movie audience and a version of Tony who thinks in ones and zeros, 3D renderings, not necessarily in human interactions. His innovations aren't just ideas. They are tangible realities. They're masterpieces that you can hear, masterpieces that you can feel. But Jarvis isn't just a tool to Tony. This is where the heart of the film comes in. He's one of the most important relationships ultimately in Tony's life. When we first see Tony down in his lab in his workshop, we glimpse the closeness that he and Jarvis share. Jarvis is right there with Tony, crafting, tweaking in the garage. And when Pepper enters the workshop too, you can feel almost palpably the extent to which Tony's entire existence, every relevant thing in his life, is right there in that room with him, fits right into that space. He's got the private jet with the stripper pole. He's got all of these lavish toys, but he loves Pepper. He trusts Jarvis and he wants to build and push and test. That's really it for him. And that, of course, can go horribly wrong when that's it for you. Looking at you, Ultron. We'll get to you when Looking it's time. At you. <laughs> Looking at you, literally everything. Oh, <laughs> everything. I mean, there's very, very few bad things in the... <laughs> in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that aren't Tony's fault in some way. <laughs> I mean, he does a lot of guy. good, but yeah. He does a uh, lot of good, but he's... A, not without the he's speed bumps. He's a lot. Not without the speed bumps, as Sokovia is happy to remind everyone. Whoops. But the desire to create, to not just move beyond a given boundary, but to eliminate the idea of boundaries entirely, that's what drives the futurist impulse inside of Tony Stark. Wish fulfillment, of course, is at the heart of every superhero story. Peer into the shrapnel-pierced heart of Iron Man, and you'll find the desire 
to have the rich and powerful experience the powerlessness and terror generated by the world that they have created so that they could develop morality and wisdom just as powerful to balance it. Tony was immensely proud of his weapons. He cared little for those they were used against and thought not at all about those who might be caught in their blast radius until he found himself on the wrong side of one of his own bombs. When Tony wakes, the symbolism is, forgive us, stark, a man defined by tech and innovation plugged into a machine, in this case, the battery that's keeping the magnet, that's keeping the shrapnel from creeping towards his heart, mm-hmm. powered. The shrapnel threatens his heart, the thing that makes him Tony, the thing that makes him human, the thing that even when he puts on his Mark I armor for the first time, ensure there's always a man inside of the machine. But to preserve that heart, the machine must become one with it, at least at first. Tony always sought the future, and now to meet it, he'll need to carry it inside of him. It would be hits the bong once kind of stuff in less capable hands, but the best comic book stories stare that risk in the face, much as Tony does the future, and pursue something profound. Those are my guns, Tony says. How did they get my guns? His brain is catching Tony up in real time. Tony doesn't understand, like, the fundamentals of, like, a, mar- a free market that people can buy and trade goods. <laughs> Listen, the multiple Come intelligences, on, you know? <laughs> He's catching up with this reality, processing the situation that he finds himself in, maybe in part because he cannot bring himself to accept what he's seeing and what it means. He's shocked. And he will learn in time, of course, of Stain's double dealing of his treachery. But his naivete is part of what allowed him to have the conversation that he did with Christine and the many others, presumably just like it, that have peppered his life. How can he be bothered by something that he doesn't allow himself to see or accept? The film, as we noted, Make some lamentable choices, and this mm-hmm. is one of them. Making the non-stained bad guys in the film these stereotypical terrorist figures. And in this exchange, because Tony does not understand them, does not speak their language, Yinsen is there to translate. Welcome, Tony Stark, he translates. The most famous mass murderer in the history of America. Tony's there because of Stain's treachery. But the Ten Rings, they intend to get their money's worth out of him. And the only way to beat Tony's weapons is to possess them. As they torture him, we see these flashes. We hear these flashes that Tony's experiencing. And one of them is Pepper calling his name. He's thinking of her on the brink of his demise. And on a rewatch, of course, after Endgame, you can't not think about how he'll be thinking of her right when he thinks he's about to meet his demise, recording that farewell to her as he prepares to fade away. And he also, of course, here sees a flash of that palladium-powered miniature arc reactor that he's about to construct. This is notable not only because of the role it plays in the plot, obviously, but because it unlocks for us quite a bit regarding Tony's futurist leanings. The arc reactor is not actually his invention. The application of it here is, of course, it's the product of his genius and, and frankly, his audacity to even think to try this. But the arc reactor is an item from the past, specifically his father's past, his father's invention, that whirring power force back at his company stateside right then at that very moment. Tony's vision of the future, this is an important thing to understand about his character, isn't just invented from whole cloth. It is so often informed by his own experience, his own history. And that experience is everywhere around him in the caves where the Ten Rings wants Tony to build 
them a new Jericho missile system. Thankfully, Doc Jensen, who we will talk about much more later, is there to provide some much-needed perspective and snap Tony into a focused state. What you just saw, that is your legacy, Stark. Your life's work in the hands of those murderers. Is that how you want to go out? Is this the last act of defiance of the great Tony Stark? Or are you going to do something about it? The moment when Tony first powers up his miniaturized arc reactor is awe-inspiring. His brilliance, so uncommon. And so is his ambition. When he reveals his plan for his suit of armor to Ginson, he's not just layering his sketches separated to prevent discovery from his captors. He's layering the future of the MCU, a future that stems from the past, from decades of lore and storytelling. Fittingly, the next sequence features Yinsen and Tony playing backgammon, which, as John Locke taught us all on Lost, is thousands of years old and rewards the long game. Strategy, the roots fueling the result. Walt! As they play, they discuss family. And Yinsen says he has one. Quote, and I will see them when I leave here. He already knows that he's going to die. Knows that he's going to sacrifice himself to help conquer evil. Tony doesn't have that full perspective yet, but on a rewatch, we do, of course. This is no small thing, as Harry reflects to himself as he musters the courage to walk toward the forest in his own sacrifice in Deathly Hallows. Quote, this cold-blooded walk to his own destruction would require a different kind of bravery. Yinsen channels that. He's driven by loss, but also by hope. Hope for a better future. And when Tony tells him that he doesn't have a family, Yinsen says... So you're a man who has everything and nothing. Again, the movie isn't always the subtlest, but it does convey the point quite effectively. Yeah. Family means love, and love means purpose. And in a cave halfway across the world with a miniaturized arc reactor in his chest and reminders of his contribution to the world's ills scattered all around him on rocks and tabletops, Tony does actually internalize those words. They are not only meant to help us, the audience, better understand Tony, but to help him better understand himself. Because what good he has to reflect on in this moment is a cliffside mansion and hot sake on your private jet. I mean, those do sound good, to be honest. But what good are they if you don't have anyone to share them with, Jason? Uh, I don't know. I'd be content to give it a go and find out. (laughs) When Yinsen realizes that they need more time more time to get Tony's suit powered up. He is acting in that moment, but it's a decision that he's made. Yes. And internal clarity that he found long ago. I will just say here, this is quite an involved invention and you should need to press more than four buttons on the computer to power it up. That's one of my notes. F11, I'm halfway there already. That's the genius of Tony Stark is he's, he had streamlined the boot up process so that the initialization was just a couple of keys. But he had to write the program from scratch. I mean, come on. Let's give Tony his due on this one. Tony's first action in Iron Man is harrowing, inspiring, chest pumping, thrilling. It was honestly everything that I wanted from an Iron Man movie experience. Yeah. I'll never forget watching the first trailer where it's like kind of cut like a horror trailer with the terrorists looking in fear at the steel door. And then all of a sudden, the boom, his yes. fist hits the door and then hits it again. Boom. And then that becomes the Black Sabbath's Iron Man. And it's, I was just like, I'm all the way in. I can't wait. I already can't wait. You know what I love? I love the moment when his left arm gets stuck in the yeah. 
in, in the rock, the rock face of the cave, because like it's the film's version of in Tales of Suspense, the origin story, when he just stumbles over for the first time. Like he, <laughs> he just he falls shouldn't like, actually be able to move flawlessly in this yeah. titanic machine that he's carrying on his person for the first time ever. It's like a quiet but important little moment. But it is also terrifying to behold this. We've seen what Tony's other inventions can do in the wrong hands. But what about this? It'll be on his mind as he refines the next generations of his armor. Telling Jarvis as he begins the work on the Mark II, I don't want this winding up in the wrong hands. Maybe in mine, it can actually do some good. That is actually, of course, what the movie's plot hinges on and what much of Tony's overall arc hinges on as well, both here and in the comics. If the source of your strength is your creation— what happens when your creations are used against you? This is not specific to Tony. It's a tale as old as time in real life and in fictional life from the children of the forest who created the White Walkers to the inventions of the Cylons. We push and pursue until we create that which undoes us. Pinocchio, Frankenstein, you could go yeah. on, and on, on and on and on. Ambition turns us all into Icarus, our wings helping us achieve the very flight that will take us into the wax-melting range of the sun. People always forget he flew. Anyway, <laughs> understanding how to maintain balance and how to atone when you fail will be a through line of Tony's journey as it has been the creatures of myth and flesh throughout all of human storytelling. Yes. It's a through line. <laughs> Yinsen's death is a quintessential Iron Man and MCU sequence, a template yep. center in a lot of different ways. There's action and brawn, but there's also heart emotion it's gonna get you there's energy and edge but also guiding purpose and when tony thanks yinsen for saving him yinsen's plea to tony is pretty gutting don't waste it don't waste your life think back to the awards ceremony when tony's myriad magazine covers were dancing before our eyes you know the proto instagram story yeah the rolling stone one read tony stark wants to save the world this right here is the moment when the fundamental nature of what that even looks like, what that could possibly mean, changes for Tony, who, of course, will come to do that many times and will do it when he sacrifices himself in mirror fashion, ultimately, to Yinsen's death here in order to defeat Thanos, defeat the enemy. And just as he's crouching over Yinsen here in that final moment, Rhodey and Peter and Pepper will crouch over Tony in Endgame. Phase four's heroes gaining the future because of the sacrifice he made. So much symmetry. On the plane, the late plane to Afghanistan, Rhodes tells Tony, you are constitutionally incapable of being responsible. At the press conference, Tony insists on calling upon his return home, Agent Coulson. Lurking in the audience, trying to get the Earth's maybe newest, mightiest hero into S.H.I.E.L.D.'s grasp, we see that Rhodey's assessment no longer holds true. Quote, I never got to say goodbye to Dad, Tony says to Stain, then to the assembled reporters. Did Howard have doubts? Did he know internal conflict? Tony does. Quote, I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons I created to defend them and protect them. And I saw that I had become part of the system that is comfortable with zero accountability. His decision to shut down his company's weapons manufacturing unit isn't the whimsical fancy of a brat used to making decisions on the fly, although Stain will try to paint it that way. It's the manifestation of a metaphorical and literal change of heart. Stain's assessment, quote, Tony, no more of this ready fire aim business. <laughs> that was dad's line, he says. Uh, 
But Howard's version of Stark Industries is the one that Tony is moving beyond. Of course, right. as he became the theme, Tony cannot completely move beyond his past. It's ingrained in him. It's a part of him, and thus a part of his future. When he gets Pepper to help him swap out the mini-arc reactors in his chest, one of the most charming sequences in the entire That's movie, great. and maybe all of the Marvel movies. He I, says I in the original— question. Hold on. Yeah. I have a question. This has always bugged me. Okay. Okay. He tells her not to yank out the magnet, right? Well, he tells she her does. a little late. She he tells does, her right? a little late. An honest mistake that anyone could have made. But here's my question. They don't put it back. No, because he's got the he's got the upgraded model. He's got the upgraded mini arc. But then uh, why arc. tell her not to pull it out? Because it didn't need to be in there with the upgraded mini arc. You needed but he the told magnet, her but not now that to pull it out. Well, it's I, very now confusing. I don't. <laughs> it's very confusing. Maybe they're all just high on the stench of his non-pus <laughs> discharge. <laughs> Love to have to explain to someone that something coming out of my body is not pus. It's an inorganic plasmic discharge. This is Sexy. this is very powerful. In the comics, of course, Tony needs like there's a long period of. Iron Man continuity where he has to wear the chest piece like yes. all the time under his right. suit every, everywhere he goes because he keeps him alive. Yep. They just don't depict what the chest piece does that well. So we're led to believe, right, that he has a shrapnel in his chest that migrates to his heart if you take the magnet out. But the way it is depicted is almost like a pacemaker where if you take it out, Tony grows weaker and weaker and weaker, but that can go on for a long period of time, as we saw when when Stain attacked him and when Pepper uh, pulled the magnet out. And then if you put the magnet back, he's fine. Whereas if this was actually what is it is supposed to be, which is shrapnel, once the shrapnel is set loose from the magnetic field and migrates into the heart, it shreds the heart. And you could put the magnet back all day and Tony's still dead. Putting the magnet on a corpse. <laughs> oh, God. They have such phenomenal chemistry together. Yeah, they do. Oh, the pus. It's not pus. It's an organic uh, plasmic discharge. Uh, oh, God. When he gets Pepper to help him swap out the mini arcs, he says of the original, that is irrelevant. It won't be when he's popping it back in place to keep himself alive in the movie's climax, freed from the, quote, proof that Tony Stark has a heart casing pepper, fittingly put it in. <laughs> in signature Iron Man fashion, the humor and the horror mixes seamlessly with the soul. I don't have anyone but you, Tony tells Pepper, making an aw shucks kind of face as he does so. And also, like, shitting on Rhodey. And Jarvis. And? And? Dummy! <laughs> Where is the respect for Tommy? He's Come there on. with him all the time. It's upsetting to me. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Dummy's like a pet. Okay, I, no, that's true. Dummy is, Dummy is cute. Dummy has like got a good personality. Come on. Dummy is mm -hmm. happy. Dummy is so happy. This is the logic of an <laughs> oppressor right here. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Dummy likes me saying I'm going to decommission him and send him to a college. I mean, he just yells at him. He doesn't really do anything super mean to him. He's just like, Outrageous. okay, will you get back? Don't do that. Don't point it at me. What are you doing? Okay. Agree to disagree. Stane's attempts to get Tony's tech from him and to remove the company from Tony's control are about as transparent as that plasmic discharge yeah. in Tony's chest cavity and as foul-smelling too, Jason. 
but it's gross. It's vile. <laughs> it initially just plays as your standard strain of capitalistic yeah. greed. For Obadiah Stane, though, that is, as we will see, inextricable from his specific brand of evil. He wants to run Stark Industries. He wants to be the best. He wants the tech and he wants the money for what they inherently provide, but also for what they give him, what they represent. Power, control, the removal of threats or competitors, or even the idea, the concept of a peer. Tony has played this interesting role in his life then. He is both his ticket to those things and the hurdle to Stane truly ever achieving them. This classic Catch-22. Stane needs Tony in order to achieve the greatness that he seeks, but he needs Tony out of the way to actually actualize that greatness. That's a great point. Thanks, bud. And so when Tony crashes his own benefit, I love that moment. (laughs) Jarvis is rendering the latest armor, and he's like, did we... Did my Evite get lost (laughs) now that we're running off our own server here, Jarvis? Tough. Tough beat for Tony there. But he crashes his own benefit, cleans up nicely in a hurry. Stain's designs in this sequence begin to reveal themselves. Though we need to allow a little room for fun and intrigue before we get to that point. So we get the sequence where... After testing out the Mark II armor and the euphoria of flight and getting a handy future MCU set up from Jarvis with his, uh, perhaps if you intend to visit other planets, we should Hello. improve the exosystems line. Love it. Love to plant those seeds. And then, of course, the exceedingly charged dance and it's conversation sequence with HR Pepper. will be in touch. HR will be in touch after that. Come on. Pepper is acknowledging the inherent challenges, of course, about the perception of what they're doing, but the unspoken nature. And everybody knows you (laughs) and the way you are. No back on my dress. I forgot to wear deodorant. Tough moment (laughs) to forget to wear deodorant. That's a rough one. I have to assume, though, by the way, that at a a stark benefit, the bathrooms have plenty of deodorant. They're going to have mouthwash, dental picks, gum. Dummy is there to hand you something, <laughs> hand you whatever you need. No, because Dummy was cruelly left off the guest list. Jason, they're talking about their feelings. Ever present, the overt acknowledgement, though, from Pepper of why being together in that way feels, at that point at least, impossible for them. And I will just note that she is still waiting for that martini. Come on. What man. the fuck, Tony? Still waiting for that martini. Tony doesn't know his own social security number and he doesn't know her birthday and it's not a surprise. Come on. She wanted three olives and she got zero. That's fucked up. Tony wants a future with Pepper, but his past keeps tugging at him. This time, Christine is there with photos of the devastation. She tugged for a while. She (laughs) tugged at him for quite a while. Tugged and and tugged. And then some organic material came out that is not pus. (laughs) It's an organic discharge that time. Yes. (laughs) Oh, God. Christine shows up with photos of the devastation in Gomira, Yinsen's town. Another place destroyed by Stark weaponry. I shouldn't be laughing over the Gomira part, but it's just not such a classic binge mode transition. They'll be saved soon. Another place destroyed by Stark weapons, despite Tony's stated mission to de-arm his company. 
Jensen's town. Stan said, Tony, don't be this naive. <laughs> Tony's reply is that he was naive in thinking that they weren't double dealing. And there's something so affirming about this sequence. Tony's first real moral test, the first time in a long time, that he's had to face the fact that people in his life may be dealing from the bottom of the deck, may not be who he thinks they are, and that he can't set everyone else's agenda just by dispensing one new line of gospel. Tony's no Puritan, and he's rarely self-righteous. Those descriptors better fit his chief ally turned rival, turned ally again, Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America. What he's feeling here, as Stain reveals, that he filed the injunction against Tony to stop Stark Industries from letting go of the weapons division, is something else. The recognition that it won't be easy to change and that his very desire will be a threat to many to whom his exploits used to prop up. Tony is a lot of things, but he is not a passive passenger. He takes action to try to craft the future that he wants to see. And the news reports out of Golmira don't only remind him of Yinsen and his plea or of Stain and his betrayal, but of Tony's own history. Quote, a child's simple question, the news report goes, where are my mother and father? Who will help? The weapons Tony made are being used to tear down a village and kill innocent people. Now, the armor he built can be used to save them. He's worn two suits of armor to this point, but the first time Tony puts on the Mark III painted with that beautiful hot rod red and gold, the desire not only to save himself or to dick around in the sky, but to save other people and take a stand for right versus wrong is the moment when he truly becomes Iron Man. He's trying to prove something to himself, yeah, but he's not only doing this for himself, he's doing it for other people. And that is how he becomes a superhero. Tight fit, though. Well, I mean, you know, tight fit, that latest armor. That exchange is priceless. What a movie. Oh, my God. Stain, meanwhile, has used a paralysis tool, a sonic taser, to best Raza and the Ten Rings at that particular camp. A meeting in which we learned that Stain was the one who paid the group to kidnap and kill Tony. Tough luck for our guy, Obadiah Stain! Technology. I love when he says after he after he freezes Raza with the sonic uh, fucking yeah. neural device, he's like, mm, technology. <laughs> the sequence is useful not only for reinforcing Stain's viciousness, but also the havoc that Tony's prize creation could wreak upon the world if unchecked, if in the wrong hands. He has made a masterpiece of death. Raza says before Stain eliminates him. And that is exactly, exactly what Stain wants it to be. A great subversion of this Iron Man movie is that Tony's identity as Iron Man is known in essence immediately to Pepper, to Rhodey, to Stain nearly right away, and then to the entire public when he says aloud, I am Iron Man at the end of the film. Improv line, fun fact. In the comics, Tony, like, many heroes carries that secret with him for quite a long time. Too, Too long. long. Jason and I have been trading texts as we've been rereading these. Come on. Why aren't you protecting Tony, bodyguard? <laughs> yeah, every time Tony disappears for two seconds, the Iron Man shows up and they're never in the same place. Oh, uh, ma'am, ma'am, I found him under a table with some debris. It's unbelievable. Anyway. <gasps> Knowing. In this film, knowing 
forces everyone to act differently, forces everyone else to contemplate the future too, just as Tony is. Pepper wants to be with Tony. There have always been blockers to that. And here's the newest and biggest. Not just the fact that they work together, not just the fact that he's her boss. If he's going to live like this, she tells him, he's surely going to die like this, right? Well, that, was, that turned out to be true. Indeed it did. When he asked her to break into his office to download these key files, she says, you're going to kill yourself, Tony, and I'm not going to be a part of it. Now, of course, as you just hinted at, when he actually does meet his end and endgame, she will be right there by his side in her own armor, operating his rescue, helping him to secure the future for their daughter, for their friends, for all of mankind. Here and now, though, for Tony, his mission isn't purely about protecting innocence from evil men like Stain or organizations like the Ten Rings. It's about protecting them from his own past mistakes. Yes. Running an eraser over the bloody ink his tech has spilled across the world. Quote, I'm going to find my weapons, he tells Pepper, and destroy them. He's consumed by the need to fix his mistakes. The future for the Tony we are with two-thirds of the way through this film, is it new or better? It's just not bad in the way he made it before. Quote, there is the next mission, he says, and nothing else. He can't see beyond that yet. Can't see what's really possible because of who he is now and what he can do. I shouldn't be alive, he says, unless it was for a reason. I'm not crazy, Pepper. I just finally know what I have to do. And I know in my heart that it's right. Pepper's heart is with Tony, too, as she tells him, you're all I have, too, you know. Rooting for those, too. <laughs> Rooting for him. Stain apparently has something else. He has the ability, apparently, to make himself invisible, to render himself unseen in Tony's very open living room because my guy, <laughs> Tony Stark, walks in, sits down on his couch, and then is promptly sonic-tased from behind. Right. Where was Obadiah? What happened there? By six foot two, probably 240 pound Obadiah stain just like pops out of their party. <laughs> Remember this you one could time? not hide behind that couch. I just, I have yeah, a lot he's of just like his knees burning, his hips aching from the hours of fucking crouching behind Tony's couch. <laughs> also, Jarvis, you're fucking fired. Yeah, come on. I mean, asleep on the like, job. Like, why even have you? This is unacceptable. Why do we have you? We need to run a system update here. This is yeah, unacceptable. You're out. Jarvis, like so many of us, swayed too easily by a piping hot raised pizza in his past, you know? Just waiting yeah. for another snack here. Brought your pizza from New York, Tony. <laughs> I love your stain. I'm going to miss this. We need him in more movies. Oh, my God. Amazing. Stain temporarily paralyzes Tony. Does not kill him because the only thing stronger than Iron Man's armor is that sweet, sweet plot armor, Jason. Hey. Can't get what he needs from the Stark engineers. Was that amazing? I'll let you take this. this Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave <laughs> with a box of scraps. Oh my God. Rough stuff there for, for William. We'll talk about William a bit more later. He has to go to the source, has to take it from Tony himself. You had one last golden egg to give, he says, as he pulls the second version of the mini-arc reactor from Tony's chest. And it is a chilling sequence, not it only really because Stane is. is robbing Tony of his life force and driving him closer to death, but because he's reminding Tony of what he's actually fighting to change right at a moment 
when Tony is incapacitated and can't do anything about it. Your father helped give us the atomic bomb, Tony. Now, what kind of world would it be today if he was as selfish as you? Boy, that is some grade A spin right there from Obadiah. I, I mean, a better world, right? Many people would argue. And that, again, is one of the inherent contradictions that play not only in this movie, but in Marvel stories, in comic book stories at large. The heroes who are here to protect us do so armed with the weapons of war. Tony sits in this moment unmoving as Stain describes Tony's nightmare to him. Nightmares that are explored in great detail in the aptly named and phenomenal The Five Nightmares comic arc. Oh man, incredible stuff. Someone else building an army of Iron Man. Someone else taking Tony's tech out into the world. Someone with a different design and a different intention working to write an entirely different future than the one Tony has in his mind. And that ultimately is part of why Stain loses. He's not the author of his own design. He's yes. not a creator. It's literal cosplay for him, an act of jealousy and mimicry and greed. He's just driving the suit. He doesn't understand it. There's nothing noble in his pursuit, no purity of intention, no selfless desire. There's no subtlety or grace with his ironmonger design. He's sheer brute force, a tool yep. for blasting a course into the next phase of domination, not feeling one out with insight and care. He's not a futurist. He's an insecure imitator and a thief. The icing problem sequence is fittingly emblematic. He thinks his suit is better, more advanced, but he doesn't grasp what really went into making it. The science is not his. The understanding is definitely not his. The heroism is certainly not his. Tony prevails not because his suit is superior. It isn't, or even intact, because it isn't. It's significantly depowered. But because he has complete understanding of how his tech works, how his suit works, how his creation works, of what's possible and what's worth striving for, of who he's trying to protect and how. You finally outdid yourself, Tony! Stane <laughs> shouts, all madman. You made your father proud! Blowing up his father's arc reactor in the surrounding lab, the version of the past that he's simultaneously been working to emulate and escape is perfectly poetic. Tony has to understand the past to craft the future, but he also has to build upon it and better it. How ironic, Tony. <laughs> Trying to rid the world of weapons. Uh, you gave it its best one ever. And now I'm gonna kill you with it. Tony's not in the business of replicating someone else's formula. He invents new ones and new futures. The truth is he, as he's happy to tell you, Happy to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Putting down the note cards that Coulson crafted for him in order to determine his own fate, his own path, free of the bodyguard story that dominated his comic arc, is Iron Man. Amazing. Honestly, a pretty succinct and handy plot summation from Obadiah Stane. Thank you. Hey, really? <laughs> Jason? Yes. Impressive. Impressive, Tori. <laughs> You've upgraded your history lessons. I've made some upgrades of my own. Why don't you tell us all about them? Please gather the masters of the mystic arts. Head to the sanctum, sanctorum of your choosing, whichever city you prefer. I would go for London, but it's up to you. Teach us everything we need to know about Iron Man's armor. Tony Stark may be the father of Iron Man, but the midwife is war, conflict. First came Vietnam, 
then the Gulf War in the Ultimate Universe, Guatemala, then back in 616 continuity, the Afghan conflict. The war has changed as the retcons have come, but the broad strokes of the origin story, however, have stayed more or less the same. The world first met genius inventor Tony Stark in 1963 in issue number 39 of Marvel Comics' Tales of Suspense. Tony was in Vietnam demoing his cutting edge for the early 60s transistor technology for the U.S. Mm -hmm. military, which involved miniaturizing transistors and using them to weaponize magnets. Magnets! Injured in an enemy raid, he is taken prisoner, and you know all of the rest. Tony's brilliance showed brightest under the most intense pressure, compelled by his captors to make weapons, a shard of shrapnel in his chest gradually migrating towards his heart. He instead, with the help of his fellow captor, Yinsen, builds a suit of armor. He would escape his prison and back in the States, help found the Avengers, Earth's mightiest heroes. Tony's first suit was, as I would argue, his greatest ever success, built under threat of imminent death, using a hodgepodge of imperfect tools and scavenged materials, the Model 1, or Mark 1 in the movies, more in this in a second, is by every measure the crudest of Stark's creations. Its form and function have remained fairly consistent in various depictions. In the comics, though, in more recent retellings, it has become significantly more powerful. But I'll do my best to point out the differences. One more note. The Model versus Mark mm-hmm. nomenclature is not always consistent when talking about Tony's comics armors. If you go to Wikipedia right now, you'll see Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3. If you go to some other sites, you'll see Model 1, like a designation Model 2, Mark 1. So in other words, the second version of the armor, but with a version 1 tweak. So you see it different ways, but I'll do my best to make it as clear as possible. The You're model saying one, that something in comic book storytelling just, is inconsistent? It gets inconsistent, it gets layered, and it varies over time. Uh, But I'll do my best to make it clear. This is, yes, this happens quite often in comics. The Model 1 is a bulky gray metal battlesuit forged according to the 2008 edition of the Iron Manual from, quote, monocrystalline iron-coated with tetrafluorothene plastic and a 3D mechanical loom. That gobbledygook means the suit is impervious against small arms fire, though, of course, it does have notable weak points, the bucket-style helmet's mouth and eye openings, and the joints. The Model 1 interfaces, and this is incredible tech from Stark, directly with Tony's brainwaves and thoughts, though the exact method varies. The underlying process remains basically unchanged across the various versions of Stark's tech in the comics and movies, as he explains in Tales of Suspense number 39, quote, The transistor-powered circuits are coordinated with my brainwaves, just as any living human's brain controls his own body. This, again, I would argue, may be his most underrated breakthrough, more crucial perhaps than the miniaturized arc reactor that he develops in Iron Man the movie. The suit has air pressure boots capable of short bursts of sustained and reasonably controllable flight, which the movie retconned as the rocket boots and a blowtorch, which can be used as a flamethrower. Features that appeared in the comics origin but do not appear in the film include suction cups in the fingers for wall climbing and a transistorized magnet, which uh, could be used as an offensive weapon in which he held like a pistol. In the comics, just as in the movie, Tony operates these manually. 
In addition to the defensive capabilities, the M1 also amplifies Stark's strength in Tales of Suspense and the beat-for-beat retelling of Stark's origin tale in 1979's Iron Man number 122, part of the Demon in a Bottle arc. The M1 allows Tony to lift a full-grown man in the air, spin him around, and shot put style throw him, I don't know, 30, 40 feet. When a metal filing cabinet full of rocks is dropped on him, however, he struggles to push it off. Though in fairness, he was low on battery power by that point in the conflict. The Mark I, meaning the movie version of the suit, is much more powerful by contrast. In Iron Man the movie, Tony's punches launch bad guys into the clear air, penetrate several inches into solid rock, and pretty easily break down metal blast doors. As Tony's comics origin has been retconned over the years, the Model 1 has benefited from significant power creep. In the influential Extremis storyline from 2005-06, the model comes fresh out of the cave with finger-mounted mini-bombs, palm-mounted repulsor blasters, at least one of which doubles as a flamethrower, and a chest-mounted uni-beam. Extremis, which we will talk much more about in coming episodes, amounted to a major upgrade, basically a god-level upgrade of Iron Man and Tony Stark's power levels. Pre-Extremis, call it P.E., The Model 1 was powered by battery packs mounted in the torso. These were charged by a generator that Tony and Yince had had in their prison workshops. The After Extremis Model 1 is powered by a magnetic field generator created and designed by Yinsen and mounted into the Mark I's chest plate. The field generator can also emit a beam of energy capable of destroying a truck. And of course, the MCU Mark I is powered by the miniature arc generator and implanted in Tony's chest. Iron Man also shows us the MCU version of the Mark II, the unpainted suit, which Tony crashes into his garage, and the Mark III, which he uses to take down the Ten Rings terrorist group, and later on, the Ironmonger, a.k.a. Obadiah Sane. In the comics, Tony has several adventures in the bulky Model 1, including his first few missions as an Avenger. Stark upgraded the suit with a chest beam and a fresh coat of gold paint, the latter to make the Iron Man more appealing to the public. People were scared of the gray Iron Man. So Tony was like, oh, it's, I got to make people love me. Let's paint it gold. In those early years, the heavily armored chest plate was the only thing keeping Tony alive. He wore it all the time. Mm-hmm. In Tales number 48, the villainous Mr. Doll, also called the Dollmaker, sends Tony crashing into the sea where he nearly drowns in the gold-painted Model 1. Tony realizes he needs a lighter, more form-fitting, and more maneuverable suit of armor, and after some tinkering, we get the red and gold Model 2. Thinner and lighter, the Model 2 featured significant upgrades. The slimmer chest piece housed extra detachable batteries. The battery packs located in the wrist and ankles ensured that the suit could continue to operate if the ones in the chest took damage. When Tony needed to up his power levels, the suit had extra battery pods so he could overpower himself. Suiting up was simple and fast. Stark, of course, is already wearing the chest piece. He'd strip down to his undies, don the wrist and ankle units, a magnetic pulse drew the metal micromesh mail, which covered the limbs, out of their housings in the chest and snapped it all into place. Then he put the gloves on. And finally, the upgraded rocket shoes, which fit over his dress shoes, put the helmet on and voila, from Tony Stark to Iron Man in about two minutes. 
The Model 2 had some really fun bells and whistles to go with the new armor smell. So many, in fact, that in Tales of Suspense number 62, Tony momentarily forgets how to activate one of his gadgets when he's in battle (laughs) against the Mandarin. The Model 2 was the first armor to have an onboard computer system, which Stark used as a kind of GPS tracker. It had an extendable antenna, which allowed for radio communication and just to listen to the game. The initial Model 2 helmet had two pieces. It had a red micro mesh hood, kind of looked like a chainmail hood, and then a horned golden faceplate which snapped down over the hood. The horn helmet was soon replaced somewhere between Tails 53 and 54. It happens off page by a sturdier one-piece helmet. And then that is replaced in Tails 58 to give Tony underwater capabilities. It was this helmet, the post-Tails 58 helmet, which earned Tony the nickname Shellhead. Diamond tip blades in the fingertips could cut through titanium. Knee suction cups, in addition to the finger suction cups, allowed for a tighter fit, tighter seal when climbing buildings and giant robots or nuclear missiles or what have you. A clip-on knuckle-mounted electroblaster was also available to him and the first appearance of the iconic palm-mounted repulsor. The Model 2 was followed by the Model 3, quote, flexi armor. After Tony has a heart attack while testifying before Congress, tough look for my guy. (laughs) It's discovered by the people who who come to his aid that Tony is wearing this iron cuirass under his shirt. Rumors begin to swirl. Is Tony Stark (laughs) Iron Man? With Tony in the hospital, Happy Hogan dons the Model 2 and flies around, thus saving Tony's secret identity. A true power. Everybody's like, well, Tony's in the hospital. He can't be Iron Man. When Happy is captured by the Mandarin, who believes that Happy is the actual Iron Man, Tony is without his armor and now grievously injured again in that previously injured heart. Tony then busts out of the hospital and heads for his Long Island headquarters by taxi to build a new suit of armor. The result is the Model 3. First appearing in Tales of Suspense 86 in January 1967, this new armor was cloth-thin but very powerful, utilizing a new transistor design and a new process involving twin energy beams. Stark effectively doubled his previous power levels. He would use the twin beams to create this kind of energy matrix, which then charged the suit. I've done it, Tony says in the comic as the beams charge his creation. I can feel a flood of new strength, new power flooding my body, bombarding my every cell. From this moment on, Iron Man is more invincible than ever before. Wait a second. Invincible is pretty... That's it. It's like pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either invincible or you're not invincible. You can't be more invincible, Tony. They don't call him the invincible Iron Man for nothing, though. You know, it's aspirational. Tony, I will let it go. (laughs) After another underwater debacle in 1974's Iron Man 68, man, a lot of early issues with early Iron Man suits sinking or not providing enough underwater security. Tony tweaked the Model 3 helmet, installing a plexiglass shielding for the eyes and mouth and adding a nose to the face mask, quote, to increase the fearsome aspects of my personality to those who oppose me. Wow, Hmm. weird, you fucking weirdo. The nose would not last (laughs) that long. It looked super weird. In March 1976's Iron Man number 84, a run-in with the freak, the Hulk-like alter ego of Happy Hogan, Long story there, fries the Model 3. Basically, listen, if you want to know 
Did something Tony do cause his good friend Happy Hogan to turn into a monster? Not once, but numerous times of the course of their relationship? The answer is yes. Tony <laughs> did cause his good friend Happy Hogan to turn into a Hulk freak. My good friend Happy. Anyway, the result of this tinkering was the iconic red and gold Model 4, which debuted in April 1976's Iron Man number 85. The main difference between the M3 and the M4 were its improved wearability and revamped suit-up process. The M4 sacrifices defense for a micro-thin form factor. With the Models 1 and 2, Tony would carry his armor around in a briefcase, right? Mm -hmm. It was a good solution for the superhero on the go, but an awkward one when Tony was in more casual social context, as a playboy often was. Not for Beth. (laughs) Not for (laughs) Beth at all. That's a good note. By that time, he had gone to, I think that's the Model 5 or 6 when he goes to the more bulkier suit. Anyway, the Model 4 torso and briefs, even in its rigid form, quote, felt like cloth, according to Stark. Now, to suit up, he wore these special bracelets, one on each wrist, and he would simply activate them, which would then activate the memory circuits in the micro mesh, which were stored in the torso piece, which he was already wearing. The entire process took just seconds. Free of the suitcase, Tony could transform into Iron Man basically anywhere, anytime. MCU Iron Man suits marks three, seen in Iron Man this film, four, seen in Iron Man 2, and seven are all related in some way to the comics model four, at least in the way it looks. The Mark Seven from the movies, in which Tony battles the Chitauri, specifically references the bracelet suiting system of the model four. The aesthetic of the model four came to define the Iron Man look, though the armor itself was tweaked and upgraded and new models were introduced at a pretty regular clip. The look established by 1976 M4 stayed basically stable until the red and white silver centurion armor was introduced in 1985. Mullet Tony. West Coast Avengers mullet Tony. He can pull it off. Tony can pull off anything. That's one of my takes on Tony. Mal. Yeah. You're a podcaster who has everything and nothing. Maybe some nuggets would help. So let's collect six of our favorite (laughs) insights and observations from this film. Like so many Infinity Stones, you go first. Number one, Dak Jensen, my dude. Though the sight of Tony's initial injury and rebirth as Iron Man has evolved over the course of Marvel lore, as Jason just outlined, from Vietnam to the Gulf to Afghanistan, Ho Jensen has been his constant companion. The 2008 film version of Jensen hails from Gulmira. And in Iron Man 3, we will actually see his initial meeting with Tony at the Burn 2000 conference, an interaction that, as we learn in this movie, Tony can't remember because of how drunk he was at the time. Now, in the 616 comics continuity, Yinsen hails from Timbet Paul. And Tony admires Yinsen. Not only knows who he is, but admires the legendary physicist's work. And Yinsen is there in Tony's initial incarnation as Iron Man, Tales of Suspense, number 39. In that origin comic, the shrapnel-repelling idea is actually Tony's, as Jason outlined above. It hinges on his patented transistors built into the metal chest piece that he believes will actually encase him for life. He doesn't think he's going to get out of that thing. But while the specifics of the Yintz and Tony breakthrough vary in the origin comic, the origin film, and the myriad renderings in between and since, the broad strokes 
remain. Yinsen's medical and scientific expertise and wisdom proved crucial in saving and reshaping Tony's life, helping to craft the technology that facilitates Tony's escape, and even more importantly, imparting the perspective that helps set Tony on his Golden Avenger course. Yinsen implored Tony not to waste his life, as we discussed, and Tony didn't from that point forward. Yinsen's sacrifice paved the way for all of the future good that Tony would work to do. And unsurprisingly, given the kind of man we can clearly see he is, Yinsen left that mark on other people too. Notably, in the comics, his daughter, Dr. Tony Ho, is a member of the U.S. Avengers fighting for a time as Iron Patriot before ultimately heeding her love interest, Aku's advice, and casting her armor aside to focus on a different version of heroism. Her father's role in launching Iron Man's legacy and his armor shifted from a source of anger into a source of inspiration over the course of her life. As she says in U.S. Avengers number eight, while attempting to escape a Hydra re-education cell. I hate those. Those are the worst. It's tough. Just as her father, of course, had had to attempt to escape his own captivity before, quote, he built the idea, the idea of Iron Man, the idea of the Avengers. My father was an advanced idea mechanic, and so am I. Love it. Shouts to Yinsen. Shouts to AIM, those wacky scientists. <laughs> Number two, the Ten Rings. In the film, Yinsen and Tony are captured by a terrorist organization called the Ten Rings, working under the watchful eye of Stain's soon-to-be-betrayed ally, Raza. But Raza, who as Raza Longknife had previously been a space pirate star jammer in the comics before the character makes its way onto the printed page in 2010's Invincible Iron Man Annual Number 1 in place of Wang Chu, is not actually the Ten Rings leader. His Genghis Khan quote in the film is a small nod to the Khan descendant who actually is. That would be the Mandarin. And no, not the mm. twist-tastic divisive version we get in Iron Man 3. I like the Iron Man 3 Mandarin twist, which we'll, of course, discuss at length in our impending Iron Man 3 podcast. Yes, we will. In the comics, the Ten Rings are literally the Ten Rings of Power worn by the Mandarin, each band of Mechluan alien tech containing the spirit of a warrior and each boasting a unique Power. If you're getting some Infinity Gauntlet vibes here, you are not alone. But despite Iron Man 3's fake-out a version of the Mandarin and the Ten Rings from the comics, and hopefully infinitely less problematic version, listen, Tony's uh, early comics origin, woof, appears Rough. to be heading to the MCU at last. In the yes. highly meta All Hail the King, a 2014 short, a documentarian springs Mandarin impersonator Trevor Slattery from prison and tells him, okay. in essence, that his Mandarin parody pissed a lot of people off, and that the real Mandarin is waiting. And at Comic-Con in 2019, the real Mandarin's role in future films was all but confirmed when the Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings title was revealed. Iron Man director Jon Favreau spoke openly during phase one of his desire to see Iron Man's arch nemesis, the Mandarin, featured as a primary villain, but noted that the magic first character didn't fit in Tony's tech first film world. Vastly more mysticism entered the MCU from there, and phase four will clearly be rife with wizardry and the fantastic. You'll introduce magic to that world, Johnny Favs said to MTV News way back in 2010, and it won't seem so out of place. In 2021 or later, barring COVID delays, those words will prove true at last. Mm. Rings of power. Jay, should we do a podcast one day about a ring of power? What do you think? I think that's Maybe, a good uh, idea. Yeah, okay. Not 10 of them, just one to bind them. 
Number three, the music sound is one of the buttresses that helps to support a comic book. From the onomatopoeia word marks splashing across the printed page, pow, bam, to the pops and the words that help bring the film adaptations to life. And beyond the masterful sound design that allows us to feel every turn of Dummy's head and every thrust of Tony's repulsors and every charged breath that passes between Pepper and Tony, Iron Man is also full of notable musical connections. Because this is binge mode, we of course have to start with a nod to the composer, Ramin Jawadi, Game of Thrones fame. That guy is just everywhere. Crushing it. But there's more. The theme from the 1960s Iron Man cartoon appears multiple times in this film, including as Rhodey's ringtone on the little flip phone. Great stuff. Plus, Ghostface Killis slept on Tony is the song playing during the flight party scene. His debut solo album was, of course, 1996's Iron Man. Black Sabbath's Iron Man, meanwhile, plays during the end credits. Tony wears the band's T-shirt later on in The Avengers. Mm -hmm. And then... Rage Against the Machines' Tom Morello makes a cameo at the Ten Rings bass and also plays guitar on this soundtrack and the Iron Man 2 soundtrack. And then there's a musical Easter egg that became an internet phenomenon literally a decade after the film's release. People are still discovering stuff about these Easter eggs. There are so many. When Reddit user Hello to Horse noted that Stain's piano sequence showcases him playing some Salieri. Now, Antonio Salieri is most famous as the rival of the vastly more accomplished Mozart. Fair to say, Isaac? He has been slandered. He, he has and... been slandered. His, his reputation has been <laughs> tanked by the Mozart heads, but he he <laughs> taught Liszt, he taught Beethoven. This guy is a legend also, just saying. Well, his reputation has also been tainted by the seemingly apocryphal tellings of his role in murdering Mozart. So that's that not also, helpful. Yes, that also. He has been infinitely slandered by this vile <laughs> calumny. But of course, the symbolism of Stain playing that, tapping into the idea of that famous rival. Stain may not have been a lasting supervillain in the MCU, but he definitely had a knack for the symbolism. Number four, cheeseburgers. God, mm. who doesn't love them? One of the saddest moments in the MCU comes in Endgame when Tony's daughter Morgan asks Happy for a cheeseburger during her father's funeral. What do you want? Cheeseburgers. Yeah, your dad liked cheeseburgers. Okay, I'm going to get you all the cheeseburgers you want. Okay, because you're rich. Rewatching Iron Man in Endgame's wake, it's nearly impossible not to weep when the first thing Tony asks for upon his return from captivity is an American cheeseburger. And honestly, like, it would taste so good. Mm. You've just been held captive. Give me a cheese. Oh. Absolutely. Take me to In-N-Out right now, folks. <laughs> but that cheeseburger carries even more significance than some may realize. As Robert Downey Jr. credits a meal from Burger King from which his satchel of pre-press conference burgers came with helping him battle addiction. According to the New York Daily News, he told Empire Magazine in 2008 that in 03, he's driving around with drugs in his car when he swung by Burger King for a bite. Quote, I have to thank Burger King. It was such a disgusting burger I ordered. <laughs> <laughs> I had that and this big soda, and I thought something really bad was going to happen. He then threw his drugs into the ocean. Number five, Obadiah and Ezekiel. Little Zeke Stain. Oh, Little Zeke Stain. What a piece of shit. What a maniac. <laughs> I hate that guy. 
Now, it is kind of fun to think about an alternate MCU timeline in which Jeff Bridges had lasted more than one movie. Not only so that you could have heard more of Jason's wonderful impressions, but so that Jeff Bridges could have actually been in these movies. And Jeff Bridges certainly agrees. In a 2015 interview with Gizmodo (laughs) and in a lot of other interviews as well over the years, he talked about being disappointed and surprised when Stane died because that wasn't what the script that he got called for. Quote, the Ironmonger falls into this big pit of whatever it is. (laughs) The Ironmonger falls in this big pit of whatever it is, some kind of acid or something. In his costume. They pull it up in the big crane and they open up his costume and he's gone. <laughs> and when we were shooting that film, they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to have you go. And I said, oh, shit. <laughs> A legend. Now, perhaps Stain had to die because Jeff Bridges is actually a part of That's MCU right. canon. Now, as online Easter egg hunters have identified time and time again over the years, one of the more delightful series of references in this film comes in the form of multiple Big Lebowski nods in the computer files that Pepper downloads at Tony's behest. There's an MSC Lebowski vessel name, a the dude hat tip in the files barcode, even a rugs that tie the room together line among many other quotes that are incorporated into the special instructions. Love to see a commitment to the bit. Great stuff. Remember, too, that later on in Endgame, Tony will memorably call Thor Lebowski. The film contains nods to Stane's comic book lore as well, including his We're Ironmongers, We Make Weapons line to Tony, which is a not-so-subtle reference to his villain's name. Now, in the comics, Stane's chessmen are a group of assassins that he assembles to help him usurp his business rival, Tony. Stain, who shifted his animus from Howard to Tony over time, succeeds in taking Tony's company away from him in the comics, but Stain eventually is bested by Tony in battle and then dies by suicide. Stain's death sets future villainy in motion as Justin Hammer, ever heard of him? One of the primary villains of Iron Man 2, of course, takes control of- Partner of Leslie Bibb, who plays Christine Everhart in real life. Amazing pull. (laughs) takes control of Stain International in the comics. Stain's son, meanwhile, also emerges as a central antagonist in the outstanding The Five Nightmares comic arc from Matt Fraction that we mentioned earlier, in which the absolutely egomaniacal Stain the Younger turns himself into a cybernetically enhanced bioweapon using stolen Stark tech. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, Jason. We have yet to see Zeke in the films, but in the comics, he's connected to AIM and he creates human bomb soldiers. Yep. In other words, elements that have been incorporated into the Aldrich Killian extremist plot in Iron Man 3. Number six, Easter eggs, baby. Easter eggs. So many. Maybe you can make the case that nobody does Easter eggs better than oh Marvel. And they've been doing it since the very beginning. They're even more than the many we have previously mentioned. Among them, Stanley kicks off his MCU appearance tradition in true king shit fashion, getting a Hugh Hefner call out from Tony at the gala. Christine Everhart plays a Vanity Fair reporter in the film, but she's a Daily Bugle staffer in the comics. One more connection between Tony and his uh, mentee, Peter Parker. Speaking of Peter, when Spidey battles Mysterio in Far From Home, 
One of Beck's main lieutenants is William Riva. We see William in his Stark Industries days here in Iron Man as the scientist Stain screams at to replicate Tony's miniaturized arc reactor truck. Tony Stark built this in a cave! Tony's love for invention is a constant present throughout the films, as is his love for race cars in his garage, in the hot rod red armor color adjustment sequence on his screensaver, etc. Fittingly, a key part of the Iron Man 2 plot hinges on a race at the Circuit de Monaco. On that track, Tony will face Ivan Vanko, a.k.a. Whiplash, who gets a nod in the Uh first Iron Man in the form of the pilot's call signs. Nod to fellow comics features Fink Fan Foom, and the vile, awful, awful, awful Roxxon Corporation also Worse. appear in the background. Fucking murderers. Oh, Roxxon is fucking truly terrible. More cheerfully, sweet darling Dumb E is a very good robot arm boy. Yes. In the many news clippings of Tony's past achievements, we see a photo of the young Tony posing with Dummy. The caption reads, Tony Stark poses with the prize-winning robot in his father's workshop at Stark Industries. Wait until you hear about Tony's Jack Me protocol that he uses with Dummy from back in the day, from his teen days. <laughs> I mean, you know, he has the spirit of an inventor and, and <laughs> manifests in all sorts of ways. <laughs> it's no different than Tyrion fucking building a sex shoot into the side of Casterly Rock, all right? It was Make it work really for you. no different. Is really well, I mean, it's slightly more direct, but yes, it's not that different. One of the items in Tony's present day workshop that thrilled the fans absolutely thrilled. I remember seeing it in the theater. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A quick glimpse of Captain America's shield visible right there in 2008 as Tony steps out of his armor, even though Cap didn't emerge from the ice in the story's timeline until 2011. According to John Favreau, it was an in joke among the film's creators, but it wound up setting fans a quiver. The film's stinger sets up the future of the MCU overtly, of course, but that wasn't really the first time Sam Jackson appeared as Nick Fury in The Ultimates, which launched in 2002 as an Avenger reimagining in the Ultimate Universe. Mark Millar and Brian Hitch designed their revamped Fury to not even look like. He was Samuel L. Jackson. It doesn't even like, oh, it's to resemble, it's (gasps) Samuel L. Jackson. You opened it up in 2002 and you were like, do they legally yes. get the okay to and put Sam Jackson in? Sam Jackson opened it and was like, that's me. <laughs> that's me. That's and so happened. who better to bring Nick Fury to life in the MCU than Sam Jackson himself? Not everyone wound up making it into the MCU, at least not yet. The original version of The Stinger, since revealed at the 2019 Saturn Awards, featured Fury alluding to the Hulk, Spider-Man, and the X-Men. As if gamma accidents, radioactive bug bites, and assorted mutants weren't enough. End quote. Hulk and Spidey, of course, make it to the MCU thanks to arrangements with Universal and Sony, respectively, with Disney's acquisition of 20th Century Fox. Are the X-Men at last on their way to me by X-Men? And we feel compelled to commemorate that the Endgame Stinger is not a glimpse of the future, but rather a recognition of the past. The sound of Tony hammering away at the Mark I armor is in Iron Man. Ah, uh, gets me every time. Every time. Jason. Yeah! If I were Tony, I would tell you how honored I feel and what a joy it is to receive this very prestigious award. Tony, you know, the best thing about Tony is also the worst thing. He's always working. 
It's always working. And this season, we're going to work for it also, because we are going to debate the winner of every episode of Binge Mode Marvel. Whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power Ah! of Binge! Okay, I will flip the coin. Would you like to make the call? I'll make the call, and then whoever wins the coin toss goes first, or do you have the right to choose whether you want to go first or not? You can choose. Okay, and are we doing it at like snake fashion? Like if I make my case first, do I make my rebuttal second or first? It's case, case, rebuttal, rebuttal. Okay, 60 seconds each for the case, 30 seconds each for the rebuttal, and then the listeners are going to vote on our social platforms at the end to decide which pick is the champion. Okay, flip the coin. It is flipped. Tails. What is your call? Tails. It is heads. It is heads. Damn it, you're already cooking the books. I will allow you to go first. Okay, okay. So you have to time me, but I'm also going to time myself. I wouldn't say that I'm known for my brevity, Jason. Let me know when you're going to start and I, g- give me a three, two, one, and I will, I will go. I have a question before we even begin. One more ground yeah. rule establishing moment here. I love Stating it. Stating my actual pick, is that part of the 60 seconds? Or do I get to say the pick and then the 60 seconds starts? No, no, you have to. You, it's part of the 60. <laughs> Looking for every edge. This is unbelievable stuff from you. <laughs> Literally every second counts, okay? Is it on the inhale? Is it on the inhale or is it on the exhale when I say my pick? But but is it on the inhale or is it on the exhale? What if I have to pause for a water break? Does that time count? No, that's the 60. You're on the clock. Once the clock starts, you're on it. I honestly might need to get one of those like water backpacks so I could just take a sip really quickly as I talk. I, I can't lose a single bullet point here. Okay, on the count of three, Wait, wait, on Start three my time. Or, or on <laughs> one, two, three, and then on three, or is it one, two, three, go? One, two, three, go, okay? okay. But now I need to catch my breath. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> this should just be the whole bit. But can oh we just God. release this? Oh, my heart is <laughs> racing, honestly. My heart is racing. Okay, I'm going to center myself. Oh, hold on a second. I'm getting a phone call. Hold on. I mean, just quickly. Classic icing the kicker strategy oh, here, but it Sorry won't work. Sorry about that. It won't work. Okay. Ready? Go. Okay. What? No. We no, count no, down. I mean, count, yeah, I mean, that's the count. <laughs> Enough of your shenanigans. Okay. okay. One, two, three, go. Okay, my pick is Doc Yinsen, Ho Yinsen, and my argument is simple. Ho Yinsen is quietly responsible for launching the Marvel Cinematic Universe and should be credited as such. He is the stealth MVP of this movie because he inspired Tony to approach life in a new way, helping the Mm. misguided playboy to reorient his perspective, find new purpose. So you're a man who has everything and nothing. If you hear that kind of thing, Jason, it sticks with you. Now, let's extend that logic for a second. If Yinsen is the low-key MVP of Iron Man the movie, that means he's the low-key MVP of the entire MCU because without Yinsen, movie Tony Stark doesn't become movie Iron Man 
man and we don't get three phases of shellhead goodness. And if I can get emotional for a second here, Yinsen is a reminder of the importance of selflessness and sacrifice, two themes that we adore here at Binge Mode, a true not all heroes wear capes character, an inspiration who becomes, for the person who becomes an inspiration for so many others, he is always a part of Tony's origin, but he rarely gets the love he deserves. He left a mark on Tony. He left a mark on us. Let's honor him. Woo! Okay. Am I going to time myself? I'll time you. Okay. You ready? This is going to be my opening statement. Okay. For the uh, members of the binge jury. I made a count it. Okay. One, two, three, go. The winner of this is Robert Downey Jr. Let's be frank about this, folks. Ho Yinsen is an absolutely important character on the path to Tony Stark's development, but where would we be? Where would the MCU be without the embodied charm, the talent, the all-encompassing energy of Robert Downey Jr., who gives you everything. Not only does he give you the charm and the swagger of Tony Stark, but when we start getting into the darker side, the demon in the bottle stuff, you don't even have to hit it that hard because we out here, the people of Earth, the pop culture audience, understands that that's part of Robert Downey Jr.'s makeup, and we just get it. He is the person that launched this entire universe, and he is the alpha and the omega. What? How do we end with Endgame? With the death of Tony Stark. And that is the way we bookend this story. He put together eh, the Avengers. Eh, 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 eh. That's time, folks. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we get 30 seconds each for a rebuttal. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. <clears throat> okay. Hold on, hold on. Ready? No. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> One, two, three, go. My rebuttal is as simple and ironclad as my original argument. I would not dare dream of arguing against Robert Downey Jr., who is the heartbeat of these movies, as Jason said, one of the true keys to the MCU alchemy. He's the best, but I'm being practical. We're going to have a lot of opportunities to honor him from here. He's going to get win after win, shot after shot. This is it for Yinsen. My guy is not going to win later on for getting hand-waved at burn, and so it should be now. I believe this is what Tony would want. I implore you, binge heads, don't waste it. Don't waste Yinsen's life. (laughs) I think I pulled like a lower back muscle on that last push there. Wow. All right. Hold on. Resetting. You ready? You count me in. Yes. And I'll time you. 30 seconds. One. Two, three, go. My co-host says she would not dream of arguing against Tony, against Robert Downey Jr. When indeed that is exactly what she is doing, folks. That is the <laughs> argument that we are having. Look at the, her background right there. It's Ho Yinsen, Sean Tube, the actor playing Ho Yinsen. Folks, it's Robert Downey Jr. He is the icon. He is the symbol of the MCU phases one, two, three, and four. Wow. You don't even need all 30 seconds. Guess there wasn't much to uh, attempt to argue against in my case. That's what I'm hearing there. But we'll leave it up to the binge heads, ultimately. Quality over quantity. That's my thing. (laughs) Okay. You know what? I want to hear from the binge heads most of all, though. So we have made our cases, Jason. And now Mjolnir is in your hands, binge heads. Head to at binge underscore mode on Twitter. Head to at 
binge underscore mode on Instagram. Head to the binge mode group on Facebook and you will find polls for the Iron Man winner debate. Cast your vote for Yinsen or Robert Downey Jr. Who is the worthy winner of Iron Man? I heard the way you changed the tone of your voice when you said Robert Downey Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Well, friends, test complete. Preparing to power down, at which point Isaac Lee, Steve Ellman, and Zach Cram, our indispensable producers and researcher, will begin diagnostics. Remember, if you're looking for past seasons of Binge Mode, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly, all of it, It's all available for you to listen to in full, for free, exclusively on Spotify. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet to explore the rest of this story, and that you'll join us again next time for our discussion of the Incredible Hulk. Can't wait. I I like it. I'm excited to talk about it. I think it's good. I'm excited. I think it's good, and that's my stance on it. I hope you bring your Edward Norton energy to that recording. Oh, I can't wait. Until then, remember, just because we brought pizza back from New York doesn't mean it went bad. Impressive! You're upgraded your armor. I've made some upgrades of my own. It's a white Russian maker. It just comes right of the hand, Tony. Call me the dude, uh, or his dudeness, or duder, or El Dudorito, if you're not into the little brevity thing.